And this morning, if you would turn your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Well, I'm super excited to be entering into a gospel this morning as we uh, just finished studying the book of Acts. Now we are going to take a look at another one of Luke's writings this morning here in his gospel. And it's, to me, kind of cool how we have been reading about this author, seeing his style of writing in the book of Acts, the way he was a detail-oriented. A little bit about Luke is that he wrote this gospel as part of a two-part series, and the second part being the book of Acts. Now Luke, as we learn in the book of Acts, he was Paul's physician, his personal doctor. And some believe even that he was the man from Macedonia who appeared to Paul in a vision saying, come to Macedonia. Now, perhaps you didn't know that Luke is the only Gentile to have a place of authorship in the scripture. Luke was not Jewish. Also, maybe you didn't even realize that he was not one of the 12 disciples. Luke came afterwards. Luke, being a physician, he was a man of science and research, and his gospel was composed from interviews that he would conduct. He personally interviewed Mary. He personally got to interview James and John, some of the disciples. Now, what I like about Luke's gospel, and I at the moment, Luke is sort of my favorite gospel, is he had so much attention to detail that he wrote 51 accounts, meaning stories about Jesus and about his life, about Jesus' life, 51 accounts that were not recorded by any other gospel writer. So there were 51 times that Matthew, Mark, and John didn't write a certain thing that Luke wrote. Now Luke, what impresses me about this is that he had ears to hear and he also had a pen to write all about the things that Jesus was doing. An encouragement for us, I think, this morning that when we come to Bible studies to have that pen ready for note-taking, ready to be a student of Jesus himself. So Luke, he begins his gospel, before we jump into it, by telling who he's writing to and why he's writing this gospel. And something you'll notice is that his introduction, he speaks in a manner that is sophisticated and intelligent and then he goes from his introduction to then speaking in layman's terms and terms that we could easily understand and he doesn't talk so high-minded. And what I love about that is he wrote this gospel so that 
anyone can understand it. Because God wants us to be able to understand his words. Now, let's begin with chapter 1, verse 1 of Luke. It says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now, again, the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, or Matthew, John, and, and Mark, they existed. They were, they were there. And Luke is saying, look, at, at the beginning of verse 1, that, look, I, I want to write a Gospel as well because I've interviewed all these people. I've taken into account what Mary was saying. I, I've taken all these eyewitness accounts and then in verse 2, he's referring to how Mary and others were delivering this to him by eyewitness testimony. It wasn't just secondhand. This was firsthand that they witnessed what Jesus did on this earth. And then he states who he's addressing this to in verse 3, which is Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is a Greek term. And he calls him most excellent Theophilus, which was usually phrased for men who were some sort of rulers. So there's a lot of Bible scholars who believe that Theophilus was probably some sort of Roman ruler at the time. And his name literally means lover of God. Theo for God and Phyllis from Phileo. Now, there's not a 100% certainty that Theophilus was an individual man, but it could be that Luke is addressing this gospel to the entire lovers of God, all those people who love God. But it would seem more probable that it was actually addressed to one individual, a man named Theophilus. And Luke, interestingly, gives us some background into Jesus's earthly family in his gospel by introducing us with the account of the birth of John the Baptist. And that's what we're going to get into this morning. Look at verse 5. It says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. So we have two characters introduced in this account, the first one being Zacharias. Now Zacharias was of the tribe of Levi, which allowed him to be in the priesthood. 
Elizabeth also was of the tribe of Levi. Now, it's so cool how Luke notes them as being blameless, righteous before God, obedient to the Lord. You see, I've been greatly ministered to lately on the truth that God desires obedience in our lives rather than results. And what I mean by that is sometimes we look at the results of the work of our ministry as the true effectiveness. But what God truly desires is for us to be obedient to him. Sometimes we think that the success of a, of a ministry is where the, the power is out. But you could take a man who, or a woman who is walking with the Lord and doesn't have a, a audience to speak in front of, doesn't have a, a literal church that they're doing ministry in, but they're obedient to the Lord and the Lord looks at them and is pleased. And then you could have a person who could be standing in front of thousands of people teaching them the word, but they're not obedient to God in their hearts and in their minds. They're living another life. And God is not pleased with that person. So you could have somebody looking outwardly like they're doing all the right things, but because they're not obedient, God is displeased with that. It's sin. And then sometimes in our life, we need to not fall into the trap of replacing obedience with works. Thinking that by going to church, by, by tithing, we are automatically in a right relationship with the Lord. But in fact, we need to make sure our hearts and minds are being obedient to God. So in verse 7, it says, But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So Luke presents a problem that Elizabeth and Zechariah had. See, though they were following after God in their minds and in their hearts, though they were obedient to him, there were still problems in their life. Elizabeth and Zacharias wouldn't be able to conceive. And it's interesting how Luke is presenting us with this problem, first and foremost in his gospel, because those Jews who would have read this would have immediately thought of Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament. And how they were also old and unable to have children, yet they were given a promise that they would have a son. And isn't it awesome when God puts us in those situations where we have to surrender a problem to him? Where sometimes at first he allows us to try to fix things on our own and he wants us to learn not to do that and just to surrender to him right off the bat. And then so God sometimes puts us in that situation where he just removes our ability to try to alter the situation and then we just have to surrender and he takes care of that problem. Now, as Elizabeth 
and Zacharias, they're old. It literally means that when it says well advanced in years, that they were bent over. That's what the Greek word means. So their bodies were, were starting to get to that point where it looked like an, it seemed as an impossibility for Elizabeth to have children. And then in verse 8, so it was that while he was serving as a priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. So at this time when they were having this temple worship, this temple practice, recorded by historians, there had to be some 20,000 Levite men that existed around this time. So with that many Levites, there wasn't enough priestly duties at the temple for all of them to be serving continuously. So they took turns. Every two weeks out of a year, perhaps, you might be able to be selected to go down and do your time serving in that ministry, in that temple. And then when your two weeks were over, then you would return back to your normal life and be, you had an occupation. And then when you were chosen to serve in the temple, they would cast lots for what part of this priestly duty that you would serve in. So Zacharias now is being chosen to burn incense before the Lord. And this perhaps would be that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where he would get to burn the incense before the Lord. Usually in temple sacrifice, what they would do is they would slaughter a lamb in the morning and also in the evening. And then they would go with these hot coals that would be placed in a golden bowl and swung around the altar. And the incense and the the hot coals, the smoke that came from it, was symbolic of prayers unto the Lord. I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. It talks about the 24 elders coming forth with their golden bowls full of odors, which are prayers of the saints, and they offer them before the Lord. We're going to learn a little bit about prayer today. Look at verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. For your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So now in this account, we see first the awesome appearance of an angel. Many believe that this angel is Gabriel, being that Gabriel is often a messenger to proclaim Jesus coming. Now, this angel, as we know, there were these 
angelic beings that were perhaps scary to see, to behold. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, we learn that the seraphim, a certain type of angel, had six wings. With two wings, he covered his face. With two wings, he covered his feet. And with two of them, he flew. So when Zacharias sees this angel, automatically fear comes into his heart. So the angel has to tell him, do not be afraid. And what I love about this, I have it underlined in my Bible. It says, for your prayer is heard. See, God hears our prayers. One of the accounts of God hearing prayers that I love right out of the Bible, is when Daniel is praying and fasting for the word of the Lord to come to him. See, Daniel, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, is is praying and fasting for three weeks. It's like, I could barely last a week without just In-N-Out Burger. I don't know how he could go three weeks without any food at all. But he's now in this state of, of prayer and fasting And he's waiting for the word of the Lord to come to him. And the word of the Lord has not yet come to him. So he's in this continual state of prayer and fasting. And then after three weeks, finally, an angel appears to him and says, Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. And then the angel explains to Daniel, you see, I was actually dispatched to you, Daniel. I was heading over to you. But the prince of Persia stopped me as I was coming to you. Now this prince of Persia, what he's referring to is an angelic being known as Satan. This, uh, so to speak, demon came to him, this prince of Persia. It may not have been Satan himself, though prince of Persia is often referred to as Satan, but some sort of demon or Satan came to this angel and they had, as my pastor Raul used to say, hand-to-hand combat there in the sky. And these angels and demons were fighting because this angel was dispatched. I'm imagining, let's say, in the heavenly realm, God tells this angel, okay, give this message to my servant. And the angel's like, all right, let's go. And he go, he's going. And all of a sudden, he's met in the spiritual realm to fight with, against demons. And for three weeks, this warfare is going on. And the demon is actually so powerful that it prevents this angel from coming. So then God taps on Michael, the archangel's shoulder, He says, hey, Michael, yeah, the little guy down there, he needs your help right now. So then Michael goes geared up, one of the top archangels goes down, and then hand-to-hand combat is fighting with these demons and is able to prevail. And then because of this, the angel that was originally dispatched gets to Daniel and says, hey, man, from the moment you started praying, God heard you. I was on my way. I was held up. And I believe that as Daniel is praying for those three weeks, the Lord is using that. 
And I'm thinking, what if Daniel stopped praying? What if he would have just said, you know what? I, I've been fasting for a week. I haven't gotten a word from the Lord. I'm, I'm done. I'm going to stop fasting and just live my life. Perhaps we wouldn't have gotten the awesome prophecy of the end times that was delivered to Daniel. So I have seen this acronym used before. It's PUSH, P-U-S-H, used for pray until something happens. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to pray and then God's going to grant whatever you're praying for, but God will answer you. It could be a no, it could be a yes, it could be a wait. Pray until something happens. And how often is God just allowing us to wait on him? To wait like Daniel had to wait for three weeks, just wait on me. And then finally, he was received with that answer. So this is where Zacharias has been praying. He's been praying for a a son, for a child, to be able to raise. And Zacharias and Elizabeth haven't been able to have him. So finally, after all this time, the angel appears and says, Look, your prayer is heard. You're going to have a son, and his name shall be John. John is the Greek name for Johannan, which means the Lord is gracious. Because the Lord was gracious to Elizabeth and Zacharias. In verse 14, And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. In just verse 15, I I do recognize that John the Baptist would not drink alcohol strong drink. He would not drink wine. And then immediately after that statement, he was going to be filled not with wine, but with the Holy Spirit. The Bible constantly teaches us not to be drunk. It teaches us not to be filled with wine, but that we would be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that you see uh, in churches today, in Christians today, is Sometimes there's that, that compromise. But God desires that we be soberly minded. And the only thing that's going to help us to stay in that place of staying away from compromise is Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God himself. In verse 16, it says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. For we will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So now this is the promise that Zacharias is given about his son that he's going to have, John. 
is that he's going to prepare the children of Israel for Jesus, the coming Messiah. What's really cool as you look at it in the last chapter of the Old Testament in Malachi, it ends with a curse. So that is the last statement that God gives to the Jewish people. And then 400 years of silence go by where the Lord no is that in verse 17 of Luke 1, this angel tells Zacharias that John the Baptist is going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. John would go into the wilderness and proclaim to the Pharisees. When they would ask him, are you the Messiah? He'd say, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm simply a voice in the wilderness crying out, make straight a path for the coming of the Lord. You see, the nation of Israel, which was supposed to be a representative of people, of of God to people, they were failing in this. So he's not a voice crying out to the temple. He's not a voice crying out to something that's lively. But the wilderness is something that's dead. And John's message was to the nation of Israel, who was supposed to be representative of God. And how often is it that the main message God is trying to get across is is to his church, which sometimes is like the wilderness, dead. You see, if you look at the prophets, who they would prophesy to, the prophets would prophesy to the nation of Israel. They wouldn't often go out to pagan nations and prophesy to them, but they would go to the nation of Israel and say, repent. Now, after at the end of Malachi, when the Old Testament ends with this curse, and it's shown that the prophet Elijah will come back before the day of judgment, the disciples, they would know about this. And this would confuse them. See, the disciples, they would begin to ask Jesus during his earthly ministry, like, hey, what about Elijah? Isn't he supposed to come back before the day of the Lord? Why don't you turn to Mark's gospel, chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, the disciples, because they know the Old Testament, they know the word of God, they know that Elijah was supposed to come before the day of the Lord. They simply ask Jesus, and that's a great thing to do when we are confused, is simply ask questions, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. Seek answers. So in Mark chapter 9, verse 11, It says, and they asked him saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the son of man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished, 
as it is written of him. You see, Elijah, his spirit, in the power of it, John the Baptist comes. And what did they do to John the Baptist? They beheaded him. Again, in Matthew chapter 11, you don't have to turn there this time, but in Matthew 11, Jesus says, I say to you, among those born of women, there had not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. So this is kind of where the disciples were getting confused is they knew that Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah. But they didn't realize yet that there's actually two comings of the Messiah. The first was when Jesus came here on his earthly ministry to die on the cross. And John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah And then Elijah also appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. So either way you look at it, Elijah was here before the first coming. And then in the second coming of Christ, Jesus is going to come not as a man riding on a donkey, but he's going to come to this world in judgment before the last day. So there are those two comings of the Messiah, which Elijah will come. And that is why many people believe that in the book of Revelation, that Elijah will be one of those prophets who appears to the Jewish people. And then in verse 18, And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. So now Zacharias, after hearing this, like, what? My son's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah? Like, I'm tripping out that you're saying I'm going to have a son right now. And he begins to doubt. He says, how, how shall I know this? Is this for real? Are you for real, God? Sometimes we ask. Sometimes we have doubt. Sometimes we doubt God's goodness, his love, his truth. But what does James say? In James chapter 1, verse 6 and 8, it says, Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And that's what happens when we are divided in our minds. We go to the left, we go to the right, we're we're not steady on the Lord. May we not doubt in God's promises. And sometimes we get off track with what we think are God's promises. Sometimes we think that God has promised us happiness. But the reality is God didn't promise us happiness. He promised us tribulations. When Jesus says that, and I'm like, what? But he also promises us joy and peace when we abide with him. 
He promises us contentment. He promises us who he is, which he is good. He is a healer. He is a provider. And then sometimes we go so far as to put our own desires into what God is promising us. So we need to be careful not to let our own personal situations dictate who we think God is. You know, perhaps uh, there's been times in, in church or in the ministry where you've been wronged by some leader or a minister or somebody in the church. And it's caused bitterness in your heart towards the church, towards God. But again, our, our personal experience doesn't dictate who God is. See, God is always good. And sometimes it's, it's hard to see the goodness of God when you're in tragedy, when you're in mourning. But it doesn't take away from that truth that he is. May we have full faith in that. And then in verse 19, after Zacharias doubts, in verse 19 it says, And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the days these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Now, Zacharias gets a spanking right here that's like, oh man, because he doubted, the angel says, all right, because you doubted, you're going to be mute. You're not going to be able to talk until your son is born. And in fact, he was mute. He would have to go around writing on a, a plaque so that people could understand him. But notice that even though he doubted, God still blessed him with the son. It's a, a flaw that we sometimes have, that we make it a rule that the faith has to be fully present and strong in order for God to move. But the angel told Zacharias of the child that was going to come despite Zacharias's doubt, and God still blessed him. Now, there were consequences for Zacharias's doubt, but again, God doesn't work on a workspace relationship. That's his grace. That's his mercy. In verse 21, and the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned them to them and remained speechless. Now, how awesome and funny this probably was is Zacharias goes into the, to the temple. And now imagine, this is like your once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You're like, I finally got picked to go into the temple. All right, I get to do my priestly duties. I'm off of work for two weeks. It's going to be cool. And then you go in there and you're swinging around the censer. And all of a sudden, this angel appears. 
gives you this message, tells you you're going to have a son, tells you you're going to be mute because you doubted. And then when you go out there, you're just like speechless. And then the, everybody's like, what? Why is he taking so long? What's, what's going on in there? How come he's not out yet? And then he comes out and then he's just like, he can't speak. He has to write on a board to them. And so they're like, well, old Zacharias finally uh, went crazy. And then in verse 23, so it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months saying, thus the Lord has dwelt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So this is the miracle of God here. God moved. God moved mightily. He heard the prayers of Zacharias and his wife. I think as a church, we need to be praying. We need to pray for God's will. You see, God can do miracles. And I, I believe that we so often for, forsake prayer we sometimes only pray when we're in gatherings or when it's, you know, time for t to eat. But God desires that we have fellowship with him throughout our day. The Bible exhorts us to be in continuous prayer, meaning that we're walking throughout our day, going to, to work, to, to school, going to family functions and all these things where we're constantly checking in with the Lord, asking the Holy Spirit, hey, I need help. Open a door for me now. Give me strength. God, what, how do you think I should handle this situation? Give me wisdom. Give me discernment. And then you're constantly in that state of paying attention to the Lord throughout your day. You're less easily caught off guard by temptation or by anger or some sort of... Uh, unexpected disappointment, you realize that God knew he's in control. So may we be people of prayer. There was a, a pastor. Um, this is in the 1800s and his name escapes my mind for a moment. I'll probably think of him. But he was a, a, a man who, he had an orphanage and he strongly believed in prayer. There, there's accounts of how he would pray for the children that were part of his orphanage because they would run out of food. And then just that day, a, a truck of milk that was passing by would break down in front of their home. And then all of a sudden, he'd knock on their door and say, hey, like my truck broke down. All this milk's going to go bad. Do you guys want it? And God would provide for them. And constantly you, you see that in his life. Was, he was a man of prayer. I'll think of his name and I'll tell you guys at the end of, of service today. His name escapes me. But we see that. We see that there is power. George Mueller. Thank you, Ashley. She knew who I was talking about. But Mueller. And we see that, you know, it, there's power in prayer. I think we started this off, this 
year off with a, a morning of, of prayer and worship because I wanted to ask God to invite us to get our hearts and minds right for this year of, of service and of, of growing with him. Let's pray for a moment. We're not done with the study, but we are going to pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us a heart of prayer. Father, that we would line ourselves up with your perfect will. And Father, that you would show yourself. May we get to know you in prayer. May we pray for one another. Lord God, may we pray for our families and even our enemies, Lord God. May our hearts be in tune with you and your spirit throughout our days. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, these next, this next portion of scripture, we actually just studied it on Wednesday night. Um, so I'm going to briefly cover it again, being that we just passed Christmas, but I think God wants us Sometimes when God repeats himself, it's because we're not learning the first time. So in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So that's six months after the conception of John the Baptist, now Gabriel is coming to Mary to proclaim the birth of Christ. Now remember, Mary was preparing for marriage. She was getting ready to be completely betrothed to Joseph. And you have the three categories that I always get mixed up of their marriage periods where they went from engagement, from the time that they were small. They would have the arranged marriages by the parents. That was called the engagement to then the espousal period where they would be more like uh, an, really like today's engaged couples. And then when they finally were married, it was the betrothal period. So Mary is engaged to Joseph, ready to finally have that full marriage take place. And then suddenly the angel comes to her and tells her, Mary, you're going to be prego by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you're about to conceive the Messiah of who's to come. So now this is going to interrupt Mary's plans and Mary's life, and perhaps she was troubled by this. And I'm reminded in my own life, am I open for God interrupting my plans? Am I open for him to redirect my path? When I see a move of the Holy Spirit, am I jumping in it with both feet, or am I reluctant? You see, we need to be ready for the unexpected in our lives. Expect it, and then we're less disturbed. And then in verse 28, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice highly, favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. So the first is the command to rejoice, because the Lord was with her. And I think that's an important thing in this chapter is to see that we need to be with the Lord, to know the Lord. He's, he didn't tell her rejoiced because 
she was doing good financially (laughs) or to rejoice because of outward circumstances, but simply that the Lord was with her. What separates us from God? Sin, idolatry, this world. And after 400 years of silence, after 400 years of God not speaking to the children of Israel, finally, God's voice comes. The proclamation of Messiah to come, which is going to reunite mankind with God, Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So now Jesus is coming to reunite us with God, that we could be with him. As Mary was told that she was with God. God is with you. And then verse 29, but when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You see, we live in an age when fear is very real. And fear involves torment, the Bible teaches us. But he who fears has, been, has not been made perfect in love. So what do we do if we're fearful? We allow God's love to flood into our hearts and in our minds because in 1 John 4.18 it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear. You see, perfect love casts out fear. And where does that perfect love come from? It comes from God. So perhaps we are afraid right now in the season of life that we're in. Open ourselves, open yourself up to God's love. Allow God to take care of those worries and anxieties. And then in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Wow, so this is what we have to look forward to. The eternal perspective that this life that we're living, it's going to be past. And only what's done for Christ will last. My brother-in-law, uh, sometimes we have interesting conversations. And the, uh, the topic of living in a simulation came up. And I, I thought, well, you know, it sort of is a, a simulation in the sense that We're spiritual beings in a world of matter. But when we die, the matter decays and fades into the ground, but our souls live on. So what we're experiencing now, it's temporary. But the spiritual is what's eternal. So I don't get too scared of the fact that, oh, yeah, there's simulations and it's going to turn off and we're in the matrix. No, you know what? God's in control, and he has my spirit, my soul in his hands. In verse 34, then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know man? You see, she's looking at this with her human perspective, 
logically. And the angel said and answered, said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. You see that Holy Spirit experience. And through Mary would come Jesus, the Messiah. And in that same sense, may Jesus flow through your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 36, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So you see, nothing is impossible with God. And I'm ministered to by that. There's a lot of things on my plate in 2021 uh, that I'm looking forward to, that I'm praying about and asking God, okay, God, I, I need to lead, guide, and provide because I know that where God guides, God provides. But I'm also asking God, God, help me to see the impossible come through. May I be like Mueller, just praying and asking God and seeing those miracles. If a man like George Mueller can do it, do it, why can't we? We don't need to be like a hermit up like a monk in the, in the mountains to get close to God and pray to God. No, we, God can work through us here on this earth, today, now. So may you realize that this morning, that with God, nothing is impossible. And walk in that this week. And share it with people. Share the love of Christ with people. Knowing that, you know what, your friends, they could get saved. And are you going to be that vessel that God uses, that messenger of Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, Lord. As Father, you show us how you sent your son, Jesus, for the world, to save us from sin. Lord God, may we walk forth in faith this week, not doubting, but Lord God, may we just know that with you nothing will be impossible. I pray for those who are in debt, Father, for those who are in need of provision this week, emotionally, financially, spiritually. Father, may they be rich in Christ. May we find our life hidden with you. Continue to teach us through your word. May we be people of prayer. And we love you, Father. We praise you, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Let's all stand. I want to encourage you guys for the Gospel of Luke to go ahead and uh, read ahead as we're going through this Gospel. 
and see what God speaks to you on it. I would love to be able to talk about it with you guys uh, before and after service and to see how God is speaking to the people, how God is speaking to you guys individually. And then when you come and hear the word again being taught, then we could get that, that double portion, that understanding of, of what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. So may we end this morning with just thanking God, proclaiming who he is, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Jesus' name. will bow down and every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise for who could stop the Lord Almighty our God is the lion the lion of Judah he's roaring with power Fighting our battles, every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. His blood breaks the chains. Every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Every knee will bow before. For him, whoa, whoa, whoa. Be blessed this week. We'll see you next uh, Wednesday. In Jesus' name.